Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Sean Paper, ACE. He's been nominated for a 2012 Ace Eddie and a Primetime Emmy for editing the Mother episode of Veep. His filmography also includes the TV shows What We Do in the Shadows, The Santa Clarita Diet, Parks and Recreation, Mozart in the Jungle, Girls, and The Vampire Diaries, among many others. Did you have to do any of the cutting during COVID? I wrapped the cutting room uh, December 15th, so well before things got out of hand. However, they finished the mix and the visual effects in January and February. And we had one final screening the first week of March where things were brewing at that point. You know, we we knew that this was probably going to be the last screening that we had for a while. Thankfully, the screening went really well and it was enough to finish the film and deliver it. So we, by the skin of our teeth, it came in right on time. Do you break rules with a comedy or do you do you think about it when you're editing or do you just go, no, it's just editing? Story specific, you have to follow the rules of the story. And uh, as Walter Murch's um, rule of six shows that, uh, you know, you always have to cut for the emotion first. It has to be real. The cut has to serve the emotional integrity of the scene. Sure. Um, otherwise, you lose the audience. I think that's just as important, if not more important in a comedy situation, because comedy is unforgiving. It's not, it's not going to be funny if you don't get the joke. So timing is certainly a rule that you have to both intuitively know and hone as you work more and more um, in the genre. The rules of, of editing you know, have come a long way since Birth of a Nation and, you know, early D.W. Griffiths and, and you know, even, um, you know, Hitchcock's world. We're, we're in a, a world where we can do anything. And the audiences are along for the ride. Audiences have become much more sophisticated in, um, in you know, how they consume comedy. So I think that there's shorthands that as a filmmaker, you can have knowing that your audience is going to be there with you. But having said that, if you stray from the path, you can tell if a joke is not working. When you're editing and you think the audience knows that this is a rom-com, does that play a part in wanting to deliver something that is of the audience's expectations or that you're playing, that you're changing the audience expectations or does it not matter? The last thing anybody wants to be is derivative while yet maintaining being able to wear the moniker of rom-com, right? So you knew there are tropes and story points that happen in a rom-com where there's a female lead who, through her evolution, gets the guy, gets what she wants, and there's a happy ending. So I think getting to the ending, you know that that's where you're, you're headed towards, but the path that we take in the Broken Hearts Gallery in particular, this isn't just a, a story about girl gets guy. This is a feminist story of a woman actualizing her life's goal and helping other people in the process. And along the way, she's got relationships that are just as important as the love relationship. 
in the other women in her life, played beautifully by her roommates, Molly Gordon and Philippa Sue from Hamilton. They're both fantastic. And Bernadette Peters is the mentor figure here and some other women in this story. In fact, all the idiosyncratic characters who support this. We've got Ego from uh, Saturday Night Live, um, some really amazing guest, guest performances that help us see this not just through a uh, truly rom-com lens, but a buddy pick too. And it, of course, you have that also with Dinker Montgomery and Arturo Castro, who are just really funny together. Uh, there's an opening Uber ride and kind of a narration of the story at the beginning. Are we watching something that is as scripted or did that get tightened or restructured? There's a lot of back and forth between this Uber ride and other things that are happening. Did those change position as you uh, worked in the filming context? This was the most, I think, interesting and fun part of this particular editing puzzle was the narrative compression that we needed in act one to get to uh, the catalyst to move forward. That always happens, right? It invariably on almost every project that I work on, there's more shot than is necessary, or there's more description or uh, setup setup that you realize you just don't need, or or it's getting in the way in the way of of the project. So we knew from after minute eighteen that this movie was working. We we were we understood the rules. We understood the um, the characters. Who inhabited this world. However, the first 18 minutes, there were several more scenes of her in the gallery world. And we knew that it was important to show her world in the gallery, her connection with Bernadette Peters and... um, The first love interest. The first love interest, yes. So we we knew we had to set these things up, but uh, we had to find a way to narratively compress this story. There were three more scenes where the first love interest actually steals her IP. She has an idea, he steals the pitch and presents it to Bernadette Peters and there's this whole rivalry that goes on. There was a classic scene in a bathroom where she thinks he's thinking about a girl, he thinks she's thinking about stealing her idea and they're at cross purposes. Wonderful scene, but it didn't belong in this story. So we knew that once we were in the Uber ride, this thing was was working. So we played around with that a lot and ended up doing a couple of reshoots to ground her relationship with her friends more because the more we saw them together, the more fun we had in this world because the the three of them had such great chemistry. So we shot a, a few other scenes to show how she curates her life and seeing that connection with curating art as a vocation. There's a, this wonderful scene in a neon store where Dacre Montgomery, the character Nick, tells Lucy why he's doing this and how he wants to give to the world this wonderful respite along the way of their journey and then start the telling of the story from that point on. So we said, why don't we try to do this in Medius Race? Why don't we do it as if it's a recounting the idea and the day? So 18 minutes got collapsed into six minutes and some great scenes were left on the cutting room floor, but we got to the story faster. And uh, that was an interesting find. So we shot, reshot her side of the story, her side of the cab, her recollecting. 
that was one of the pickup shots. And it was able to put the glue of, of the scenes together without the need to inhabit, you know, another 12 minutes of story time. The interesting thing that, that I would love to hear you talk about is the value of losing those 12 minutes in, in a movie that, you know, if that movie had been 12 minutes longer, you know, by numbers, it wouldn't have made any difference, right? We, as audience members, know when a half-hour TV show is two minutes too long. I think we, I think we know if it feels like we've plotted through something. And I've worked on enough, specifically half-hour TV shows, where you could feel the weight of the fat and and the desire to trim. The first ten minutes are really tricky in this because we did want to preserve the world and still keep the idea that um, the first love interest is taking advantage of her, and she's allowing herself to do that, so that um, the feminist independence that she always has but has subjugated is actually allowed to breathe and take off. Once we got past that first 18 minutes, we knew the rules of the world. It was difficult to figure out which bits of those first couple of scenes were necessary and yet uh, propel us forward. This movie at two and a half hours would have overstayed its welcome. So I think that there is a, a, a point where you're, you're itching in your seat as an audience member. And as an editor, I have to feel that. And I have to know when I've overstayed my welcome. The interesting thing in what you were just talking about is figuring out what you have to cut out is it's not inevitable, right? It was in the script. And what you chose to lose, it sounds like, was plot. And you think, oh, that's an important point that he steals this IP from her. But if it's not emotionally getting us anywhere, and if it's not in her point of view, maybe, that would make a difference. Why was, I was just trying to figure out what the, what the thought process of that's what got cut. From the beginning, you realize that he's not the person for her. And the first time that we see, we see him through in, in a scene, he says to her, hey, you're my favorite secret weapon. And she gives him a, a bit of advice, a really smart piece of advice, but he freely takes this. We don't need to see another scene where he takes from her. So I think judiciously we found the most economical way to set the parameters of, of their relationship so that it will emotionally have a payoff without having to go through three more scenes where this is happening. As delightful as they were, that wasn't what this movie's about. I've watched enough rom-coms with my wife that you know what the tropes are, right? And so you know that the guy at the beginning of the movie cannot be the guy. <laughs> like This, right, this right. guy, she's got to get rid of this guy. He's, she's, he's the one she's with at the beginning. Like This, this guy's got to go. So like, why spend more time on him than... And the audience probably knows that if, you know, the the women that have watched those. We still did our best uh, efforts to kind of keep it in because there were still many other things about these other scenes that we loved. But in the interest of, of keeping this movie going, you do have to kill some babies. You have, as you mentioned earlier, you have cut a lot of comedy before this. Uh, I interviewed the some two of the What We Do in the Shadows editors recently on Art of the Cut. Oh, great. 
Um, so I see that uh, you cut um, one of those. You've cut Veep. You've cut all kinds of great comedy as TV shows. Is there a difference in that kind of comedy cutting as, as what you're doing here in this feature? A show like Veep or Parks and Recreation, and, and to some extent what we do in The Shadows, it's a different type of comedy. In Parks and Rec and, and in Veep, the body count is six to eight jokes per minute. How, how, <laughs> how do we keep that going? And, and level those jokes three deep in the background of a, of a shot so that, you know, on the fourth viewing of, a, of an episode of Veep, you'll see a joke in the background that you never noticed before. So I think there's a different style of comedy editing. However, a rom-com has a lot of great one-liners, some great dialogue that our really uh, a talented writer-director, Natalie Krinsky, came up with, along with rehearsal the process and ad-libs that she encouraged the actors to do. Having cut Parks and Recreation and what we do in the shadows, where there is a lot of improv, I intuitively follow the funny rather than seeing what's the scripted line. Um, and I think that having had that, I'm able to look at this footage with that prior experience and kind of meander through the story beats with the most delicious improvs that, that I find. Some of the greatest lines of the film came out of improv. The character Marcos, who plays next best friend and carpenter and and um, ha- alt- uh, handyman in, in the making of the uh, hotel they have a, a scene where he says look you're you're a straight white guy living in america if your only thing is that you don't want to get in love oh god cry me a river this was a spot on and timely and we you know and i really worked to preserve those moments and arturo was so funny in the his first scene my cutting room was just a streetcar ride away from where they were doing a, the bulk of their shooting. So I would take an iPhone video of the scene that I had cut prior and go to the set and show Natalie what I had been working on. And, and that's how we developed our camaraderie and our intuitive connection. We had the first scene of Marcos where he comes in and he meets Lucy for the first time. And the improv there and how he interacted with them was so good that Natalie wrote him into five more scenes. I liked that scene a lot. Like that instantly made me love both characters more. Yes, I think so. We saw that. We saw that how he became the go-to guy for, for a joke and a connection I think he made the connection between Nick and Lucy that much sweeter because he's able to make fun of Nick and we're, you know, we're allowed to see the straight white guy who doesn't want to fall in love. We understand him from a more sympathetic point of view because we've got this great guy making jokes at his expense. <laughs> exactly. And most of those were completely ad lib and, and uh, I'm glad you point you looked at that scene and you felt that too because that was that was important and made us realize that this happy accident is something that we could incorporate more and it yes it added to their dynamics. Yeah, I also like that it kind of broke a trope like just when you're starting to see the two leads like have some kind of connection this other person comes in and kind of he doesn't sweep her way you know he's not she's not going to end up with him you know they're not going to fall in love they're not going to have an affair 
they're going to truly be friends. And then to see that relationship where you're like, wait a minute, he just sabotaged the whole point of this movie, (laughs) which is these two people fall in love. What's up with that? I loved it. There's a little section of studio, like documentary things where people are talking about their exes and and the things they're dropping off at the hotel. I was interested to find out about one, how they were shot and there's like a flicker and film grunge. And I think there's even a projector noise underneath one of them. And I was interested in the choice in this day and age in this modern comedy to have it look like Super 8 film or 16 millimeter film. Uh, well, I think the idea, we always had this idea that there would be a confessional uh, going through it. And our casting directors chose such amazingly distinctive people who walk in and out of Lucy's life. We were always going to have another element, another layer to this film, which was the real life confessionals of people with broken hearts. In the beginning of When Harry Met Sally, there's old couples in love and them talking to the screen. So it's not something that is new, but it still is effective in, I think, in making the reality of this world that much more rooted. Every day that we had these actors, we had a set where Lucy films their broken heart story. We didn't know until about the end whose story was going to be where and how that emotionally would track through the movie. Many cutting rooms have a big wall of index cards that show all the scenes that are and and in what place and what order. And it wasn't until when we got close to the end that we figured out when we introduce a character's confessional, at what point in the film will that make sense? And we'll get the audience buy-in and, and have it not be completely out of context. And what's the funnest version of, the, of, of a story? On set, Natalie would have a suggestion box, but she called it the confessional box. And she encouraged everybody to put in their heartbreak story, put in a memento that they kept from a past relationship after every week. The best one got a bottle of wine. My story (laughs) did not get, I didn't get a bottle of wine. Oh, I could have won that bottle of wine. Come on. (laughs) The whole family of this film were involved in this and had an emotional interest. So some of our stories became the stories that these people told in confessionals. How it became a film look with grain as opposed to video. It wasn't shot on an iPhone and it was just an aesthetic choice. We realized that looking at it. It did something to the emotion of it or the quality of the emotion. I think it made us feel like this could be in a museum rolling on a tape reel. I'd really love to explore this more about how you decided where these were going to go in the movie because they it did seem like you could kind of put them anywhere. There are a lot of scenes they could have gone between and the order is not a foregone conclusion. Tell me about in your editor's cut. I'm sure they you had to have some of them in the editor's cut and where did they move from the editor's cut? In the first pass or so, I did follow the paradigm of of when Harry met Sally and I uh, front-loaded these stories. But because we weren't getting to our story, the same problem that we had before of so much setup, we felt like it would get lost if it was all front-loaded. So we, we waited till we introduced a couple of the prior relationships. There's a point where Lucy goes and asks her last boyfriend why they broke up, you know, and he says it's kind of it's because of your collecting. And, you know, this is a bit of a realization to her. At this point, I think we as the audience understand 
what her neuroses is, which is also her talent in which she morphs into this gallery. I think the first time we see one of these interstitials is after we've met the X. So it makes sense that, you know, once we really understood it, that this might be a place where we could start injecting it. And then after that, it became at, at act breaks or part of another montage that we would put together. I think we always realized that there were two things that were being built in the movie that we necessarily not necessarily had footage for, which was the accumulation of people dropping off things to the gallery and making the gallery um, successful and being the word of mouth, the telephone game that makes us realize that this gallery is coming to fruition, and the step-by-step building of, of the hotel. These were elements that we realized pretty early on needed to be part of a montage, part of a greater thing. So we found ways to collapse other parts of the story. Like, for instance, there's a walk-and-talk scene where Nick and Lucy offers him the suggestion that she could be uh, his interior designer. And it's a it's a, a long walk-and-talk, but it's much more interesting if it's part of the process of them building the gallery and building the hotel at the same time. So we realized that we, we did want to compress these elements that we didn't need to see the entire hotel being created out of this old YMCA that Nick buys, but get the uh, feeling of doing that. And in, and as I think as you asked before, what are the, some of the normal rules that you can break? I think in this world, you know, the mechanics of seeing the success start to unfold is something that in the rom-com world can easily see as part of a, a music montage. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Sean Paper. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Sean Paper. It wasn't until kind of the end of the movie, and and I also want to stop here for a second to explain to the audience who hasn't seen this film yet that the basic premise of it is it's a woman that collects something from each one of her ex-lovers, boyfriends, whatever, and she has this, she's like a hoarder. I mean, that's what her, her girlfriends call her. She has all this stuff. And then that becomes this gallery when she realizes that other people also have stuff that they save from old relationships. And what I realized was that there's only one person that ever drops off anything, correct? That you only see the one person with the cast, the, the leg cast. That's the only person that ever drops off anything. That's right. So that's the impetus for the first montage of building and also getting donations for the gallery at the same time. So we had we only had really two pieces of film 
to tell that bit of a story. So we augmented it. It, We took the money being dropped into the coffee can, and uh, we called it the Mount Kilimanjaro of Lucy's acquisitions. Starts to... We actually uh, shot it in reverse. So there was a giant mound of things that we would pull it away. And in reverse order, we would see that the gallery is taking off. This was a complex montage in that, you know, I knew that this was going to be a music montage, but it was. It also had several dialogue scenes in it, some of these confessional interstitials, and two or three days um, in the day of the life of Nick and Lucy setting up the hotel at the same time. And for the life of me, I couldn't find a piece of temp music that satisfied all criteria that I needed to encapsulate this eight-scene montage without it feeling completely Frankenstein together. So what we did was we, we knew that this was pretty much the shape of what we wanted. This was about the time that we were searching for composers, and we asked the composer candidates if they wouldn't mind auditioning with this really hard scene to come up with a way to connect these maybe five minutes of of film together. What ended up happening was uh, Genevieve Vincent was a composer who just nailed it. She gave us a forward momentum of the piece, a, a lightness of it. It had a voice of what we we thought would be the voice of, of Lucy acoustically. And uh, she got the job, and I finally got a piece of music that would fit underneath this montage. Uh, good trick. I thought that was a needle drop. I, I might be thinking about a different part of the movie, but... That was her first piece that she gave to us. It, it was really fantastic. There's a social media sequence where people learn about the gallery that happens earlier before Wilhelmina shows up with the cast. And that one has um, uh, a pop song underneath uh, there's a series of jump cuts as she's she's writing on the wall. So this broken arts gallery with all this stuff hasn't really happened. And she starts to write on the wall a little bit about this artifact that she has placed there. And there's a series of jump cuts. And I'm sure that they shot the whole thing where she wrote. She didn't write very long. It wasn't a very long. She didn't write two paragraphs. She wrote a couple of sentences. You easily could have left them as she writes the whole thing out without any jump cuts. What is the value of putting the jump cuts in? In the scene that you're talking about, she's been walking around with uh, the tie of her ex. She wouldn't let go of the tie. It's been like three weeks. She hasn't changed her clothes, and she and she's still wearing the tie of her ex. And she's at the hotel against this plaster wall where she and Nick are, are getting to know each other. And he asks, why don't you leave the tie here? And at first, she was completely resistant. And there happens to be a, a nail on the wall. He gently places it up on the wall and presents it as a tableau, as if it was placed there. And she asks for a magic marker. She says, okay, I have an idea. <laughs> He's like, okay, you're going to write on my wall. Great. So she does. She writes the story of um, the four months that she was in this relationship with and you know, and it took place in New York, New York. There are two answers to that. One is that we had a this side angle that it didn't show off the writing so much. It was more about her because you wanted you wanted to reveal the the message at the end. Exactly. So we wanted to see this building of something as important is going to happen. It was part about you know setting up the jump cuts. Say 
pay attention to this moment in a way that sitting on a shot and building the music is another way to make that happen. But I wanted to show the importance of this moment and reveal it afterwards as, as the creation has been made. And we see this satisfying, beautiful, behind their backs, um, wide shot that's kind of perfectly lit that shows this is a, a piece of art and this is this is a special moment. So I waited for that next shot to come. And that's why those jump cuts happen. Jump cuts, I think, are the hardest cuts to make in a movie or TV show that hasn't established itself yet because it, they are so self-conscious. They're, just, they're so bold. So if you do make a jump cut, I like to make jump cuts early so that we know that that's going to be allowed in the film vocabulary of the piece. Yeah, 100%. You can't reveal a, your first jump cut 45 minutes into a movie. Right, right. Cardinal sin right there. So there are several points. Are, in fact, when she's asked to introduce her, her rival and her old lover in a gallery opening, I do you know, like three jump cuts of her taking three shots of tequila before that happens or get her liquid courage going. So these are to draw attention to the moments. You know, jump cuts are always conscious. You can't unconsciously make a jump cut. So there's nothing worse than an unmotivated jump cut, right? I think we can both agree on that. Yeah. Talk to me about the music cues. There's a section where the genesis of the Broken Heart gallery happens and it's clearly a moment the audience is supposed to realize is a turning point and again i think it's one of those tropes of a rom-com that you're like oh now i see where this is going right right i think it's the scene where she puts the the tie up there and you start to realize oh my gosh this is going to become a gallery or maybe it's where he says oh look somebody put a map there and then you go oh this is going to become a gallery oh uh, right put. right in the first instance when she puts puts it on there and we realize that this is a, an important moment it is is a composed piece by Genevieve Vincent and i call it our 2001 space odyssey moment because there's a there's a chord <laughs> progression that sounds like thus spoke zarathustra and uh, but <laughs> that's that's this is exactly the moment i'm talking about because i was like Ah, this is the moment that's important. That's it. So this is our 2001 Space Odyssey. The tool is being welded into a spaceship. You know, the grand transition is happening. But she did it subtly. I don't know if she did that consciously or not, but the first time I heard it, I thought, oh my God, this is... This is 2001 Space Odyssey. This is the moment. If you hear it, it's you know completely different instrumentation, and it's in the voice of the film. Oh yeah, but it's it's a, the spoke right of the Zarathustra. There was something about that music that struck me. I, mean, I don't think most audience members would pick up on that, but we're editors, and you're like, oh, there's that's interesting. I I got that music cue. The social music montages you're talking about. It's a flurry of Twitter and text messages and that kind of stuff, Instagram. How much of that did you build and how much of it did you know this has got to get subbed out to a graphics person? We knew from the first week of our director's cut that we needed to show the trajectory of the gallery, this gallery being built, and the hotel being built at the same time. These are two big things that are happening that needed to be augmented or didn't have much footage for. I remember I asked uh, the producers if they had any footage of the various stages of the uh, hotel being built. I said, I think we need more footage here to make this thing work. And I called my buddy, Myron Kirstein, who had done Crazy Rich Asians, who had built that 
great transition, that telephone game transition that we find out, you know, all the mothers know about the relationship. And it's just wonderfully composed and crafted graphics montage along with real footage. I asked him how long it took them to do that. He said, it took, a, it took us a month and a half. And I said, I, I think that's more than our whole post-production schedule here. Uh, <laughs> and he said, yeah, and, and it, we and it was a month and a half probably altogether, but the director and I talked about it while we were in the director's cut, and he would go out and shoot more pieces, and I would assemble it and, and hand it off to visual effects, and, they were, and it was built piecemeal, and we didn't have the luxury of that. So we always knew that something needed to be there, so we gave it to Picture Mill, an amazing um, VFX company, and Evan Jackson was our VFX producer. We wanted it, these transitions to feel as if they were being built um, with our characters in mind. I think they did a great job and kind of have it feel like it's rooted in the story, that it has a, necess- uh, a necessary uh, place. Um, you talked about getting jump cuts kind of established early on. The other thing that I felt like you needed to get established early on. I wanted you to talk about kind of where they got placed was there's a series of phone calls that phone, you know, like uh, she's calling somebody's answering machine or something. I was thinking maybe it was the answering machine of her dead father. And that was the last time she could hear his voice. I couldn't figure out what the plot was going to be. Talk about spreading those out because she has these phone calls to somebody that you don't know who she's talking to. And they're sprinkled out before you finally discover what the answer is. It's an important tease that we need to set up to get to a particular point in the story, and I don't want to give it away. There was a point in our uh, editing process where we had more of them, and they became too apparent. Because this was a mystery, we were battling with how much do we give away and how much do we shine a light on this before it is necessary. And I think that we added a few lines off camera to make it seem like it was more connected to the story. Mm. They were always written in to the script, but we realized that we needed less of them and they needed to reflect on where she was emotionally mm. so that you could see that she was leaving a message and it was related to the great night she had before in karaoke with her friends or, or you know. They were the, important moments. Yeah, yeah. And, and checking in. You know, so the mystery wasn't for mystery's sake. We have, I think, three of them now. I was going to ask you if you just used the rule of threes for deciding how many <laughs> there would be. I think, you, you know, even if you don't try to do the rule of three, it ends up being that way. That's why it's a rule of threes. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was we were intentional about that and wanted to make sure that it was happening enough so that you'll understand, but not so much as to make it feel like uh, either a red herring or you know it's a niche that we we didn't want to scratch too much. You mentioned the karaoke night, and I wanted to have you talk about that a little bit. I had to do a a very similar scene recently. I, it was just very well constructed. I liked it. How how difficult was that? to make it feel like it's a party that's just happening. It's almost a very documentary style. This was one of my, my favorite scenes to cut in this picture because it's the point where you realize all of these people really like each other. And you see the connection between the love interests and, and all their friends are, are coming together. So it's an important scene. I think if you've cut many episodes of television, you will have invariably cut 
four or five or six karaoke scenes in in a, in a show. <laughs> I I can't I can't tell you how many karaoke scenes that I've cut since um, Ugly. Oh Betty. come on, we need a compilation. I want you to create a compilation of your ca- <laughs> of all my Sean best. Paper karaoke, and then I want that as a video to go if in the. If I had a nickel for every karaoke <laughs> scene I've had to cut. But um, since there's there's two great karaoke scenes that I think I've done. Well, one isn't quite karaoke, but it is a sing-along. It was um, the girls episode where they're dancing to and singing Iconopop, which kind of blew up that song. And, and this moment, which I really enjoyed cutting, A, because we had Philippa Sue sing a song who is from Hamilton, right? So we have somebody who can actually sing who's doing the karaoke piece. And the connection between her and Nick really grow, and you see them having a really good time together. And everyone's involved so it's it's like a, you know it's a great little anthemic moment where everybody's rooting for them and and i think this is a point where you actually root for them as a couple to really want to be together so it was fun to cut because the stakes of it were so well laid out um and it was so well acted yeah it knows it was so much fun and and it's also one of those again rom-com kind of tropes where you know that the girlfriends have to approve of the boyfriend Right. I, I think we just wanted to have fun with it. There was a point where it started out with Amanda, the best friend, giving a birthday toast, but that didn't have quite enough energy. So mm. we repurposed the footage so that the girls sing two songs together. So there was more energy at the top. I think that was a really good note that Natalie gave me at the beginning. It was like, who said, let's start off with a bang, with a firecracker. And we did. And and this is the time where you see all our characters together and having a good time together. So it was an important scene and really fun to cut. I love that. To take a slight break from there, I, w- I would love to know what the girls episode is. Do you know what the title of it was or what season it was in? Bad Friend, Boys? Uh, it was the Bad Friend episode. Bad Friend is 203. Yes. Yeah, so they reversed the order. I think I think two and four had, had changed. This is the scene where she and her roommate dance to this song. So this karaoke scene, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, of the along. many you have had to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be able to, you know, up the game here. I don't know what to call this other than the Yamaka montage and the music choice in that Yamaka montage. We were always looking for a particular palette in our music and uh, Melanie Mitchell, our music supervisor, was just fantastic in giving us things like I I asked her for any song that's by a female artist that is about memories. And she gave us the opening track that happens under the main titles. I remember from Betty who, which is just perfect for our film. It checked all the boxes for us. My, daughter actually she's my go-to for you know what's relevant and she's a uh, 16 years old she's for everything that's relevant in teenage pop and um you know alternative music she's my go-to so she turned me on to the mitski track this wonderful anthemic thing where she has her catharsis and she realizes she doesn't need her trappings anymore at the at the end of the movie this song first love from mitski was 
on my uh, daughter's uh, playlist and she's like you have to use this song and it was one of those things that if you listen to the lyrics it's pretty heavy and in fact one of our male producers was like i think this isn't right for this moment i think this might be a little dark and um antithetical to where we are and i said trust me it passes my daughter's test of young teenage triumphant music nobody's really listening and opening credits to the lyrics anyhow they're just bopping along and looking at the images and i thought it was great a great selection congratulations does she get does she get an assistant uh, music supervisor credit (laughs) i should give her one because she also turned me on to billy eilish and we use a a billy eilish track at a, a point where Everything starts to change um, at the uh, the end of the second act. So this was our palette. That song that you're referring to during the the Yamaka montage, it's about you know her uh, defiance, and it's it's called Rebel. It speaks Lucy's language and her inner voice of the moment. But honestly, that was a choice that uh, I think Natalie came up with. They're things kept from old relationships. And one of them is a stolen champagne bottle. And that ends up coming back in a scene. Was Were there any more scenes with that guy? I wish. He, that, that was a reshoot scene. Uh, and this was a beautiful call from Natalie. We shot the two scenes in the coffee shop from the beginning and the scene at the end in our two reshoot days. She said, we should see... Dwayne. She said, so "There's a point in the in the movie where she's sitting amongst the acquisitions, and she reads this really poignant story to Nick and Marcos about this undrunk bottle of wine that these lovers had. And it's a poignant moment that neither man is comfortable enough to admit that they're shedding a tear for in the film, but are thus, you know, are struck emotionally by it anyway." In the reshoot, she said, "Let's see Dwayne. Let's have him. Let's have him show up." She wrote that into the into that uh, reshoot scene, and I, I think it was a great addition. If we had two more days to reshoot, we would have added him to more scenes because it was just a perfect payoff and a really distinctive supporting character who shines. You picking that out certainly shows how important it was and and how worthwhile it was for her to add that scene to it. You don't know what's going to happen in the script. You've got the script. You've got actors you've hired, but you don't know how they're really going to hit an audience. And sometimes these secondary actors are in their scenes or their characters or whatever. You go, man, there's magic there. Let's give that guy some more scenes. Yeah, that's exactly what happened here. And in such a, um, a fortuitous series of events that happened, adding Arturo Castro to more scenes and us finding the rhythm of the opening montage or Uber drive, because there's so much um, you explore to find out what story you want to tell at what point and whose story actually comes out from the page to the script to uh, through acting in, uh, into the um, the final piece. I don't think anyone can plan or predict exactly what it will turn up like. So I think it'll always be a medium where we can have that collaboration of amazing, magical moments that happened in one take that are just all of a sudden make the whole scene justified or become special. Um, and Walter Murch has his you know, his rule of six, rule of six you know, and, and, and he's evolved on, on his thinking of that. Now he's thinking about um, nodal editing, a different style of editing, which I think is just a, uh, another 
fancy way of saying cut when it's the right moment to cut. No, I know what you're talking about. It's the branches, right? Yes. That, that there's these places where a branch comes off and that's kind of where you Right. Cut. As opposed to being cutting at the end of an action, you know, which I think it, <laughs> he said that he, that you have to cut before the end of an action, but not during. And then it evolved into, well, you cut where it's the right point to cut. And there's so many factors that go into that. You know, it's like the jump cuts that happened in, in the, um, writing on the wall, they happened because the film didn't support staying on the shot for that long a period of time. So the film dictated that that should be a jump cut, you know, as, as we have, um, you know, hard and fast rules at the end of the day, it's what the film gives you and how well that integrates. And when it stops integrating is that's the point where you, you, you got to cut, you got to make a change. There's an intercut sequence leading up to the climax of the film. Our heroine is in place with her gallery doing her thing. And someone is coming to her. Talk to me about trying to cut that because you've got to pace it properly so that there's enough space that it's kind of, even though you know it's coming because you see this person coming down the street, there's still also enough space where you're like, oh, it's a surprise when he shows up. Can you just talk about trying to cut that scene and timing out when to go from A story to B story? We know the ending is coming, but I don't want you as the audience to feel that it's an ending. This was a tricky editing choice to keep this train rolling knowing that we're getting to the end without ending it too early. So it became an exercise in pacing. I only had a few shots of the action that leads. Um, There's the interior and the exterior. Let's call them that. Right, right. So the, the, the penultimate scene was a balancing act between the forces that brought us to the end of the film. And to do that is a tricky exercise because you don't want to give it away. You want to keep it moving. A lot of it was built with the music. Certainly the music helped at this point to kind of elevate each moment was amping up towards the next moment so that at the, uh, the climax of, of these um, two scenes happening happens you know in a satisfying way so i think it was genevieve who certainly helped drive it emotionally to where it needed to go and a lot of it also was in the speech the important parts of the speech where who i wanted to have reflect the parts of the speech so it was an exercise in making sure that all the characters were invested in this moment i remember what happened but i don't remember the specifics of when you cut outside from the speech, but were those specific moments in this in her speech? There were specific moments in the speech where I wanted the speech to kind of continue and interconnect with not just the characters that are attending the speech, but also start to unfold the other scene. So sonically, we had her the speech continue, and it was a fun exercise to kind of see how we were going to bring all of the elements and all of the characters to that one final place at that moment. Yeah, that's what I was getting to, is how you, how you build to that very specific climax of two things joining at a specific time. It was tricky, but I also have to say that it, it just sort of had to fall in place that way. So it's not like it, it cut itself, because some scenes do. You know, Some scenes are like, I just followed what was going on because that scene cut itself. Uh, once I had the pieces together, 
it did cut itself because I just had to cut to the reaction of, of, of the best friends at a certain point. And I had to cut to a reaction of, you know, um, and you had to be on her at a certain point. You're like, she has to deliver this line on camera. These people have to react at a certain point. And okay, this is a point where we could afford to be outside. Right. Right. So it, it all, it all kind of came together that way. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Sean, thank you so much for talking to me. Just, this was a great discussion. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you and, and I really enjoy your podcast. So uh, it was an honor to be a part of it. So thank you so much. That's it for the Art of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Sean Paper, ACE. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.